0: Good evening and welcome once again to our Bible study series, out of, bon- out of Bondage into Abundance. And I promise you tonight we're going to be done with the wilderness. We want to get out of the wilderness and move into the promised land. And if you are uh, following along in the notes Uh, These are available at our website, which is new-life-ministries.org, and both the uh, downloadable written notes as well as audio recordings for all of these should be available there. And again, the study is entitled, Out of Bondage into Abundance. Uh, It's a seven-part series. We are going to be completing part five, entitled Journey Through the Wilderness tonight. And if you are following in the outline, uh, we're going to be continuing from page 77. But let me give just a few words of introduction again. The children of Israel, after spending almost a year at Mount Sinai, they left Mount Sinai under the guidance of God's cloud of glory by day and the pillar of fire by night, and he led them. And we're told in the book of Deuteronomy that it was an 11-day journey from Mount Sinai to the border of Canaan, the promised land. And an 11-day journey ended up taking them 40 years. And obviously, one has to ask, how could you possibly take 40 years to complete an 11-day journey? And we've been trying to answer that question here in Part 5. And from the book of Deuteronomy, we have been able to glean a pretty good outline of God's reasons for them spending such a long, protracted time in the wilderness. And we've been looking at these five points, and we'll be finishing up the fifth one tonight. But just to recap, the reason Israel spent 40 years, not 39, not 41, but 40 years, can be summarized in these five important purposes. Number one, it was to humble them. Number two, to test them in order to know what was in their heart. Number three, it was to teach them that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Number four, it was to discipline them. And finally, and this is where we are finishing up tonight, it was to remove unbelief, rebellion, and backsliding from the congregation of the Israelites. Now, nobody likes to go through deserts or trials or tests. We have different names for them, but we're basically referring to in most cases, to the same kinds of experiences. And I want to emphasize again, as we're finishing this section, it was the Lord who led them through all of these experiences. God had a purpose. They weren't just randomly wandering around in the desert, bumping into things and getting into trouble. God led them into the wilderness. He had certain purposes that He wanted to accomplish in taking them there, and as we're seeing in this fifth and final section, it was a very severe time of God's dealings with the Israelites. There's a scripture we'll be looking at later tonight from Romans chapter 11 that I've referred to several times already, where Paul says, Behold, or consider, both the goodness and the severity of God. Those two characters seem to be diametrically opposed, goodness and severity. But we need to have a revelation and an understanding of both if we're going to have a complete picture of who God is. God is love, he's merciful, he's kind, He's gentle. there's There's a goodness to God that is unparalleled in all of creation. God is good. But, He is also a God of wrath, a God of judgment, a God whose anger can flare up in a moment, and when it does, look out, because our God is a consuming fire. And, sadly, Many Christians think that it's either or. They talk all the time about God's love, God's goodness, God is so merciful, he forgives everything and anything, his love is unconditional, and he's just like a big old Santa Claus up in heaven. Anytime you need anything, you can go to him and he'll give you whatever you want. And then there's another distorted view that only emphasizes the harshness The severity of God. You better look out, or God's going to whack you. And we walk around in fear and trembling all the time, worried that our next slip up, God's going to smite us and send us straight to hell. Well, both of the views are correct, but they need to be balanced in order for us to get a complete picture of who God is. And therefore, Paul's words, consider the goodness and the severity of God. And certainly when we look at this last purpose for the 40-year detour in the wilderness, we can begin to understand quite graphically the severity of God. We saw last time that there's a, a very clear explanation in Scripture why it was 40 years. And it was 40 years for 40 days. And that references the 40-day spy mission that we read about last week, where 12 spies, one representative from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, went into the Promised Land to check it out. Seems like a good plan. Most Military commanders would want to do the same thing. Joshua did it when he was about to enter the Promised Land. He sent two spies in ahead to check things out. However, we saw last time that the, the motivation for this spy mission was wrong from the very beginning. It was born out of a spirit of unbelief. And many of the questions that they wanted answers to, God had already answered. And many of the things that they hoped the spies would find out when they went across the Jordan into the Promised Land, God had already told them exactly what to expect. So in a sense, they're going in, in the first place, was an expression of their doubt. It was an expression of their unbelief. And so, not surprisingly, when the twelve spies returned, the majority of them already had a spirit of unbelief. And although Joshua and Caleb, the two exceptions, the spies who came back full of faith, trusting in God, believing that God was with them, the other ten came back and discouraged the whole congregation of Israel. And because of their discouraging bad report, the whole nation fell into backsliding, grumbling, complaining, unbelief, crying and wanting to go back to Egypt. And God was so angry at this whole uh, event. We saw in Numbers chapter 14, when he was ready to destroy the whole lot of them, and he told Moses, look, move aside, I'll burn them all up, and we'll start all over again. I'll make a new nation out of you. Sounded pretty good, but Moses being a true intercessor, and intercessors are concerned with the glory of God. They're concerned for God's name. Because of that, Moses pleaded with the Lord not to strike them down, because if he did, then the people surrounding them would say, the Lord who brought these people out of Egypt with a mighty outstretched arm, he was not able to complete the work that he started. He was not able to take them into the promised land. So, in a sense, it would make God look like a failure. So, Moses said, Lord, please forgive the sin of these people. And in Numbers 14, verse 20, the Lord replied to Moses' prayers, and he said this, I have forgiven them as you asked, nevertheless, continuing in Numbers 14, verse 20, nevertheless, as surely as I live, and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory, and the signs I performed in Egypt, and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath. And he goes on to say in verse 29, in this wilderness your bodies will fall. Every one of you twenty years old or more who was counted in the census and who has grumbled against me, not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home except Caleb And Joshua and then finally in the ending verses of Numbers 14 we understand the reason for the 40 years in the desert in Numbers 14 starting at verse 31 as for your children that you said would be taken as plunder I will bring them in to enjoy the land you have rejected. But as for you, your bodies will fall in this wilderness. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lies in the wilderness. That's severe. That's the severity of God. And here it comes, verse 34. For 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days you explored the land, you will suffer for your sins and know what it is like to have me against you. That's that's harsh. That's extremely harsh. One year for each day that they explored the land. And if parents were to apply that kind of a principle in disciplining their children, they would have their children taken away by protective services, and they would go to jail. <laughs> this is very severe. It's, it's kind of like, I think I gave the example, uh, if my parents told me to do the dishes one night a week, and I failed to do it, and they said, okay, Wayne, you didn't do the dishes last night. You're doing them for the next year. 365 nights in a row, you will be doing the dishes. Not one of you will survive. Every one of you will die in the wilderness. And for 40 years, God would wait until the last carcass fell on the desert sands. And you can begin to understand how upsetting the Israelites' unbelief, their grumbling, their complaining, how upsetting that was to God's heart. And in verse 37 of Numbers 14, he says, these men who were responsible for spreading the bad report about the land, were struck down and died of a plague before the Lord. Of the men who went to explore the land, only Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, survived. When Moses reported this to all the Israelites, they mourned bitterly. So, one of the primary purposes, sadly, for the 40 years in the wilderness, was to weed out and remove all the grumblers, all the complainers, and all the doubters. And the very children that they were so worried about, God said, your children are going in to enjoy the very land you have rejected. And so, for 40 long years, they went round and round and round the same mountain in the wilderness until the last of those 20 years and older who had treated the Lord with contempt, it says, dropped dead in the desert. And there are numerous other examples of this kind of a thing, of God rooting out, removing these negative, bad elements from the congregation of Israel. But for the sake of time, I want to look at just one more, a couple of chapters later in the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 16. This is referred to in the New Testament in the writing of Jude, and he refers to it as Korah's Rebellion. And I want to read quite a bit from here because uh, I think it has its parallels in our New Testament experience, and that's what we want to try to do after this is to bring this over into our time period and ask ourselves, what does all this mean to us? Does it mean anything? Or is God a different kind of a God now. He's kinder and gentler, and we need not worry about him ever dealing in similar ways with our grumbling and backsliding and rebellion. In number 16, um, I'm going to start right at verse 1. Korah, son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, he was a Levite. He was from that special tribe, of Levi that had been separated by God at Mount Sinai to be ministers of the Lord. Korah, the son of Levi, and certain Reubenites, Dathan and Abiram, sons of Eliab, and An, son of Peleth, became insolent and rose up against Moses. With them were 250 Israelite men, well-known community leaders who had been appointed members of the council. They came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far. The whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? Now, this was... A valid question in a sense. Uh, basically what they're saying to Moses and Aaron is, who made you the sheriffs? Where did you get your authority? Why are you the leaders? We're just as good as you are. And this was no small uprising. They had gathered together a group of 250 Israelite men, well-known community leaders, But there's a key word that we just read in verse 1 or 2 I guess it is. It's the word insolent. They became insolent. Pride began to fill their hearts and because of that pride they rose up in rebellion against God's ordained and appointed leadership. And that's what we will learn in this whole story. Indeed, Moses was no better than anyone else. Aaron was no better than anyone else. They had their weaknesses, they had their faults. But God had appointed these men, and he had given them their authority, just like the government gives the policeman his authority. So these insolent leaders rise up, and they come to oppose Moses and Aaron. Who do you think you are? They're basically asking, Why have you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? Drop all the way down to verse 28. Then Moses said, This is how you will know that the Lord has sent me to do all these things, and that it was not my idea. You know, When God places you in a leadership position, when he gives you a ministry, you don't need to defend it. God will. And it wasn't your idea. It was God's idea. That's why the Bible says, make your calling and election sure. Make sure that whatever it is that you're doing, God is the one who called you, ordained you, and placed you there, because if and when you are challenged or opposed, you won't have to defend yourself, it wasn't your idea. I like Moses' answer. Um, This is how you will know that the Lord has sent me to do all these things, and that it was not my idea. If these men die a natural death and suffer the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about something totally new, and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them with everything that belongs to them, and they go down alive into the realms of the dead, then you will know that these men have treated, not Moses, not Aaron, they have treated the Lord with contempt. Verse 31, As soon as he finished saying all this, the ground under them split apart. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them and their households and all those associated with Korah together with their possessions. You know, we've been speaking about this in the church for several weeks now, Uh, in light of some recent changes uh, in the rules, shall we say, of our society and culture, one wonders, where's God in the middle of all this? Well, I think I answered that question several weeks ago in a message I gave in the church. The first words I heard from God were, I will not be mocked. God will not be mocked, and though he delay, make no mistake, God is a God of judgment. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God, and when you anger God, when people treat God and his word with contempt, look out. It's just a matter of time. In the case of Korah and all of his followers, the ground opened up. Verse 32 again, The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them and their households, and all those associated with Korah. Notice that last phrase. Not just Korah, not just the other leaders, anyone associated with them was also buried alive. We need to come out from among them and be separate in these last days. We must make sure we have no participation, no connection to, no association with the spirit of this world which is an antichrist spirit. It is defiant. It is rebellious. It is against the laws and the rules and the precepts of our God. Anyone associated with with Korah, together with their possessions, was buried alive. Verse 33, They went down alive into the realm of the dead, with everything they owned. The earth closed over them, and they perished, and were gone from the community. You know, sometimes you have to pause when you're reading these stories and remind yourself this really happened. I am, I am what I guess a theologian would call a fundamentalist literalist. I take the word of God literally. And I've heard all kinds of crazy interpretations on this. I believe God's word means what it says, and it says what it means. The earth opened up, and it swallowed them, and they were screaming and crying as the dirt was closing in over top of their faces. They perished. And verse 34, at their cries, all the Israelites around them fled, shouting, the earth is going to swallow us too. And as if that wasn't bad enough, it next says, and fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. Verse 41. The next day, the whole Israelite community, you've got to be kidding me. They still haven't learned their lesson. They grumbled. The whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. You have killed the Lord's people, they said. But when the assembly gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron and turned toward the tent of meeting, Suddenly the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. Then Moses and Aaron went to the front of the tent of meeting, and the Lord said to Moses, Get away from this assembly so I can put an end to them at once. And they fell face down. Then Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer and put incense on it, along with burning coals from the altar and hurry to the assembly to make atonement for them. Wrath has come out from the Lord, the plague has started. Verse 47. So Aaron did as Moses said, and ran into the midst of the assembly. The plague had already started among the people, but Aaron offered the incense and made atonement for them. He stood between the living and the dead and the plague stopped. Verse 49. But 14,700 people died from the plague in addition to those who had died because of Korah. This is severe. And one of the reasons you can hear in this passage we've just read, God wanted to rid Israel of all these grumblers, all these rebels, all these insolent people. Get away from this assembly so I can put an end to them at once, God said. And indeed, he was putting an end to thousands while they were there in the wilderness. Now, What does all of this mean for you and me? Thank God we are under a better covenant, the new covenant of grace, washed by the blood of Jesus Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Certainly, we have better things to look forward to than what happened to these Israelites. Well, let's examine this a little bit. In 1 Corinthians 10... We've read this passage before, but we'll read it again because now it'll make more sense. Paul is actually referring to a number of these stories that we've just been reading and studying. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 to 11. And of course, he's writing to New Testament, New Covenant believers. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud, and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized in the Moses, in the cloud, and in the sea. We've studied all that, how they passed through the Red Sea, how the cloud of God's glory came upon the tabernacle as they journeyed from Mount Sinai. Verse 3. They all ate the same spiritual food, that would be the manna, and they drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Now you won't read that in the book of Exodus, what you read in Exodus is that Moses struck the rock and physical water came out of that rock and gave them drink. But here's one of many examples that we've looked at previously, where New Testament writers, pointing back to Old Testament stories, show us that they were types and shadows of spiritual realities. And so without any explanation, in verse 4, Paul says, they drank spiritual drink, and they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Now, you won't find anywhere in Exodus that Christ was following them. That was a revelation that God gave Paul through the Holy Spirit. That the rock that gave them drink in the wilderness was really a picture for you and for me of the reality which is Christ who gives us rivers of living water. Continuing from verse 3, I'm sorry, verse 5. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us. Now stop. These things occurred thousands of years ago. That's when they occurred. But they are also examples for us. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written... The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. That's a reference to the golden calf at Mount Sinai where all of the people were dancing and reveling and carrying on. Verse 8 We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes and do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These are all references to stories that we've read in Numbers and elsewhere. He's pointing to all of these Old Testament stories and saying they're not just stories to read. They're examples to keep us from repeating the same mistakes. And here's the clincher, verse 11. These things happened to them, the Israelites, as examples, and were written down as warnings for us, New Testament believers, Christians, followers of Jesus, written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. You know, I've heard well-meaning Bible teachers and preachers explain the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And with some variations, a classic explanation goes something like this. Man, under the old covenant, God was really severe. When they stepped out of line, he zapped them. He sent snakes. He burned them up. The ground swallowed them. He killed thousands and thousands of them for their unbelief and disobedience. But praise God, now we're under the new covenant of grace. And although they don't say this, What's implied is, hallelujah, now we can get away with murder. We can do anything we want. We can live carnal lives, selfish. We can do anything under the sun, and it's all under the blood. Sounds really nice, but it's false doctrine. And that doctrine will take you to hell. It's false. That is not anything close to... To what the Bible teaches. And I think the next two passages will help us to see that clearly. Matter of fact, the reasoning is totally contrary to what we will read in the next two verses. If God was that severe under the Old Covenant, how much more severe will he now be for those of us who have been washed By the blood of the Lamb. Hebrews 10 from verse 26 to 31. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment, and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. He's writing to New Covenant believers. Fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire. Verse 28. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. We've seen that in story after story from the books of Moses. It was severe. We read a few weeks ago of a man who was gathering sticks on the Sabbath. They stoned him to death. Verse 29. How much more severely Note those words carefully. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled, not Moses, not the Ten Commandments, not the Torah, who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted, not Moses and Aaron, but the spirit of grace. Again, pardon me for repeating this, but I need to to get the point across. He's writing to Christians. He's writing to New Testament believers. And he's saying, don't think you're going to get off easier now because you're under the blood of Jesus. How much more severely will you be punished if you trample underfoot the Son of God and you treat the Holy Spirit of God with disrespect. Verse 30 For we know Him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the Living God. You know, several weeks ago, I addressed our conver- uh, our congregation about some of these recent changes in the laws and in our culture, and I spoke that day something that I have heard the Lord clearly instruct me, and that is the following: I will not be speaking much about those issues. Uh, specifically anymore. God told me very clearly to direct my attention to His people, to the church. We are where we are today primarily because of the failure of the church. And we can yell and scream all we want about gay marriage and drugs and crime in the streets, but the Bible says judgment must begin at the house of God. And Here it says, the Lord will judge His people. And we need to start turning the flashlight on ourselves. We need to start examining ourselves as the church, as God's people, and start asking some hard questions. Lord, what do I need to do to be saved? What needs to change in my life? Where have I fallen from grace? Where have I uh, left my first love? And how do I get back to my first works? How do I get back to my first faith, my first zeal, my first love for God? Yes, God is a fearful judge, and His judgment is going to begin with you and with me. The Lord will judge His people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So this doesn't seem to be fitting very well with the narrative I mentioned a little earlier that some preachers and Bible teachers uh, would espouse. Namely, uh, things are going to be a lot easier now that we're under the New Covenant. God's going to be a whole lot more flexible. And you know, it, it almost leads you to believe that somewhere between Malachi and Matthew, God got converted. He became a nicer guy, uh, you know, gentler, more forgiving, uh, just generally a, a nicer God, and he's not going to uh, flare up in anger the way he did in the wilderness with the children of Israel. Well, that's not what we just read. And let's look at the other passage that I've been referring to on a number of occasions in Romans 11, from verse 17 to 22. Romans 11, 17 to 22. If some of the branches had been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, had been grafted in among the others. And if you're familiar with the whole passage, Paul is comparing the branches to the Israelites, and the grafted in are the Gentiles. So some of the branches, the Jews, have been broken off. And you, Gentiles, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root. Do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. Remember, the branches represent the Jews. They have temporarily been broken off. Those are Paul's words in verse 17. But he warns the Gentile believers... Do not consider yourselves to be superior to those branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say to them, Branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted. But they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. King James says, the goodness and severity of God consider both consider God's kindness but don't forget also to consider his sternness his severity his harshness consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God sternness to those who fell but kindness to you provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. You know, I'm often confronted and challenged by people uh, when they hear me teaching on this subject, and they get very upset, they get very angry with me, and they say, you can't possibly be implying that a Christian can lose their salvation. Well, I may not have used those exact words, but you explain to me what does it mean if a believer, a Gentile believer, who has been grafted in to the nourishing vine of God, if he becomes arrogant, or if he begins to drift away in unbelief, God says he or she will be cut off. What does that mean? What does it mean to be cut off? And you find other references in the Scripture to names being blotted out of the book of life. Well, you can't be blotted out of something if you weren't in it. So, very clearly the implication is you were once saved, your name was once in the book of life, but there are certain cases that God says will warrant your name being blotted out. Therefore, what you and I as followers of Jesus Christ under the blood in the New Covenant What we should do is exactly what Paul is suggesting and advising in verse 22. Spend time considering both the kindness and the severity of God. Search out the scriptures. Look at all of the instances that speak about God's love, His kindness, His goodness, His mercy. But don't neglect to look at all of the stories, some of which we've read tonight, that demonstrate the other side, God's sternness, His severity, His harshness. And as you do that, you will come to a fuller, more balanced revelation of who God is. And it will enable you to love God, to trust God, but also to reverence God. We just read in verse 20, Paul says, You stand by faith, do not be arrogant, but tremble. I think that's the right posture for a Christian. I know that I'm standing tonight, but I'm standing because of faith. I'm standing because of the grace of God. But I also know I can lose that standing. I can turn away from God. I can fall into unbelief. I can become a rebel. I can become arrogant. I can uh, walk away from my salvation. Therefore, I need to remember, stand by faith, do not be arrogant, but tremble. In another place we read, Paul writing to the Christians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You're already saved. Praise God for that. You've got salvation. You're under the blood. You're water baptized. You're filled with the Holy Spirit and you speak in other tongues. That's wonderful. But now, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You know, there are many parallels between what happened to Israel in the wilderness and our day-to-day life as a Christian. God took them into the wilderness to humble them. He will engineer special situations and circumstances tailor-made for you and for me just to humble us. He will put us in situations to test us, to know what was in our heart. Not that He didn't already know, but as we learned, it's more to reveal, to make known what was in your heart. He will take us into the wilderness, maybe even into times of necessity, times of lack, times of hardship, to teach us that God not only will provide us with manna and water to drink, but more importantly, he'll teach us man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. As a follower of Christ, God will use trials, humblings, wildernesses, deserts, difficult challenges, to discipline, and chasten, and to teach us total dependence on God and His Word. And my friend, these things are not uh, fun to go through. I speak from experience. They're painful. They're hard. But once you've passed through those experiences and you begin to learn the things that God was teaching you in that desert, in that trial. It's invaluable. It's, there, you can't put a price tag on it. Not that you would want to go back and repeat the experience, but praise God, He brought you through, and you're a different person now. Hopefully a little wiser, hopefully a little closer to the Lord, depending on Him more than ever. Leaning on the Lord and not on our own understanding. The purpose of the wilderness is to refine and to purify. It's to get rid of the junk and the garbage and what remains is refined, pure gold. Just as Israel's disobedience and unbelief prevented them from entering into God's rest, we must be very, very careful not to repeat their mistakes. And this is actually how this whole Bible study series came about back in early January, when our church was uh, going through our 21 days of fasting and prayer. God began to speak to me very clearly from Hebrews 3 and 4 about entering into His rest. And repeatedly, and repeatedly there, he warns us not to make the same mistakes the Israelites made. He wanted them to enter into his rest. Entering his rest is another way of saying entering into the promised land. And there were two reasons they failed to enter his rest. Unbelief and disobedience. Let's close out this section tonight reading from Hebrews. We'll begin at the end of chapter 3 and read on a little bit into chapter 4. Starting at Hebrews 3, verse 19. And to whom did God swear that they, referring to the Israelites, that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Two key words, disobeyed and unbelief. And it boils down very simply to those two things. That's what kept them out of the promised land. wasn't the size of the giants. It wasn't the strength of the seven enemy nations that were there had nothing to do with any of that. They were their own enemies, their disobedience and their unbelief. Continuing into Hebrews 4 from verse 1, Therefore, since the promise of entering His rest still stands, please note those words, the promise of entering His rest still stands. We're under a whole new covenant now. Moses is dead. The old covenant is obsolete. It's been replaced with a new covenant. But the writer of Hebrews boldly tells us the promise of entering God's rest still stands. Therefore, let us be careful that none of you be found To have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because those who heard did not combine it with faith. Now we who have believed enter that rest. Notice that. We who have believed enter that rest. They couldn't enter because of unbelief. We enter by believing. We who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said, so I declared on oath in my anger, (coughs) they shall never enter my rest. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. And on the seventh day, God rested from all his work. And again in the passage above, he says, They shall never enter my rest. It still remains. There it is again. It still remains. It still remains that some will enter that rest. And those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Therefore God again set up a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David, as was said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. Verse 9, pay close attention. This is for you and for me. Write your name on it. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work. This doesn't mean we're going on a long vacation. This is a different kind of a rest. It's ceasing from our own agenda, ceasing from our own works. We're not pushing and striving to try to get our own will done. We're resting in God. Entering into Canaan was entering into rest. Houses were already built for them, vineyards already planted for them, streams and rivers flowing with crystal clear water, drinking in rain from the heaven. They didn't have to do anything, just enjoy God's abundance. That's what entering into His rest is all about. Verse 9 again, There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. We don't have time tonight to go into all of this, but the writer of Hebrews is not referring to a literal observance of the Sabbath day, one day out of seven. He's talking about entering into a state of being, a state of rest, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, where we are resting from our own works, resting in God's grace and power. Verse 11, Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. That's strange. Make every effort to enter that rest. Well, here's the effort, so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience and, from the context, their unbelief. So, you and I have a great challenge. God is calling us into the Promised Land. He's calling us into His rest. Very clearly, there is a rest for the New Covenant believer, the follower of Christ, And we are enjoined here to make every effort to enter into that rest. The effort being not to try to work for our own salvation, not to to try to earn brownie points so that God has to give us a lot of stuff in heaven. The labor, the effort, is to not fall in disobedience and unbelief. In other words, We have to continually work at keeping our heart in a state of belief and faith and obedience to God. Listening to God's voice. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. God help us to trust Him and to obey Him. What does the hymn say? Trust and obey, for there's no other way. That's really what it's all about. Trusting God with our whole heart, taking Him at His word, and then doing whatever He tells us to do. In closing, and this will prepare us for what we're going to introduce next week in part six, the Acts chapter 13, verses 17 to 19. It says, The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. Paul is giving a little history lesson here about the Israelites. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness. That's what we've just finished talking about tonight. And then he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. In part six, we will return to something we've touched on already. And that is, from the time God began to speak to them about the promised land, way back at the burning bush with Moses, and even before that, in Genesis 15, when God first introduced all of this to Abraham, he was giving them little hints that this land, flowing with milk and honey, the good land of Canaan, It was also occupied by seven wicked, evil enemy nations that would have to be driven out, dispossessed, when the children of Israel went in to take possession of that land. And so, we'll begin a rather lengthy section in part six, beginning next week looking at conquering seven nations. Seven nations in Canaan that had to be defeated, conquered, driven out, so that the Israelites could move in and make Canaan their home. I think you'll find the next part very interesting and lots of parallels with our experience now as Christian believers. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Your Word is so amazing. Lord, every jot and tittle, every phrase, every experience in Your Word is there for a purpose, and it's all written for our admonition, for our instruction, for our teaching, and in many cases it even is there for the Holy Spirit to give us deeper revelation at a future time. Lord thank you for this whole story of the Israelites coming out of Egypt and traveling through the wilderness in order to enter the, the land of Canaan, the promised land flowing with milk and honey. And Lord, as we're concluding tonight, there was a 40-year interim in the desert where you had to humble them, test them, discipline them, teach them, and even root out many who were grumbling, unbelieving, and rebellious against you. God, help us not to repeat those same mistakes. Help us, O God, to make every effort to enter into the rest that you've called us to now by trusting you, by listening to your voice, and by obeying you. Lord, we don't want to fall through disobedience and unbelief. We want to enter in through faith and through obedience. Help us, O God, Help us, O Lord, to walk out, work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that He who started a good work in us will complete it for the day of Jesus Christ. Lord, You have undertaken this great work of salvation in our lives, and we believe that You are able to complete it. Lord God, Bless each and every one listening on the phone, on the internet, even those that might be listening in the future to the recordings. Touch their hearts. Lord God, by your spirit of grace, quicken us, strengthen us, encourage us to continue on this journey. Bring us all back to that first love, that first faith, that first zeal that will take us across the finish line in these last days. Father, we commit our lives into your keeping hands. Watch over each one of us. Keep us as the apple of your eye until Jesus returns in glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.